Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Good afternoon. This is The Ride Home on Pittsburgh's Christian Talk, The Word FM, the Thursday edition. Happy to be with you on this gorgeous autumn day. Mm-hmm. That sounded like such a formal uh, entrance. Were you, are you feeling like a little fancy today? Or? Well, you know, I just sometimes I, I wonder if people know what it is. Who we are. I think people who listen daily Maybe. are still wondering. What if, you know, it's at, it's at the top of the hour and you just kind of hit the button and go, what who is this? Is who are these yeah, people? Exactly. So I wanted to put a sort of formal stamp on who we are. That was good, John. Thank you. Appreciate I like it. that. Very good. What do you think about, do you remember the, um, those like wax stamps that used to go on the back of an envelope? Oh, yeah. You'd melt the wax yeah. and put the thing. Yeah. I always wanted one of those. I like, I did too. Did you have one? No. Oh, you would strike me as having one well, of those. Well, I, I feel a little... I don't know. Maybe like I missed out. Right. Because now... Is it too late? Well, a little bit, unless you're sending a lot of letters. Yeah, maybe who sends letters? Maybe for your Christmas cards. Okay, I haven't sent Christmas cards out for the last two years. So that's the first problem. Oh. The second thing Why is, can, can you imagine me doing that? Can you imagine me dripping wax and doing... What are the... Didn't people have do, rings? Yeah. Right? They were sure. Like, like a, a seal. Yeah. Like the Count of Monte Cristo. My seal <laughs> on this. Right? So I'm going to do that on my 150 Christmas cards. Not if you're sending them, not sending them out for the last couple of years. Low <laughs> expectations Are you for disappointed year. that I didn't send them no, out? No, it's fine. It's your business. Okay. I mean, you know, I didn't get one, but I just figured she's just blowing me off. She doesn't invite me to her party. Why should I get a Christmas card? Did I not card? just invite you for Thanksgiving? Oh, you did. Jeez. Thank you. You did. This is a tough crowd. No, no. I just, I mean, it was, that's no, fine. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, right, we'll discuss this at a later time. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Coming good, up, <laughs> was it good? It was a solid opening, but then it devolved. Yeah, it quickly, really did. Coming up in the five o'clock hour, we're going to be talking about the hymn Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. Listen, there's a new book out. It's the 250th anniversary of the song. It's so fascinating. It is so fascinating. So James Walvin is going to join us live from the UK. York. Uh, from I'd like that's another place I'd like to go. Yes. Um, anyway, very much looking forward to that conversation. Also, uh, the World Cheese Awards just happened. <laughs> What's that happened? I've never followed that before, but this year I became quite interested in it. Brought to you by like some cholesterol drug. Exactly. And how to get a decent workout while cleaning your house. <laughs> that sounds dubious as well. Coming up in the fight. And then All this right. hour, um, pasta and rice could be healthier as leftovers. Than eating them like right after you cook. Really? I think rice leftover is kind of shaky. Do you think? It's hard to reheat well. Yeah. That's the problem. It gets all flaky. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. weird. But pasta, I have no problem with leftover pasta. No. Pasta, you can just put in a skillet and heat it up. You can do it. But rice is a little trickier. Yeah, it is. Yeah. All right. So we'll talk about that later on. Mm -hmm. Without further ado, though, because the uh, globe continues to spin, Kath, the news stories of the day, please give us the top four at four. For Thursday, November 9th, 2023, number one, Israel has agreed to daily four-hour humanitarian pauses in the fighting in North Gaza. Uh, John Kirby, who's the National Security Council spokesman, announced to reporters that the four-hour humanitarian pauses will be implemented in northern Gaza beginning today. The Israelis have informed the U.S. there will be no military operations in those areas for the duration, and the timing will be announced three hours before the pause begins each day. An Israeli official also confirmed the four-hour daily pause, saying the reprieves are meant to allow people to move to the south of Gaza to obtain food and medicine. The fighting continues, the Israeli prime minister's office said later, though, and there will be no ceasefire without the release of our hostages. 
More details about that available at CBS News. Number two, U.S. stocks, John, rapidly bounced back from their autumn lows and the S&P 500 on track to notch gains for a second consecutive week. Some investors breathing a sigh of relief after things have been up and kind of topsy-turvy over the last few weeks. The Federal Reserve left rates steady at its last meeting. Many are confident the central bank is done raising interest rates, at least for now. Um, Meanwhile, earnings this season have impressed investors. The members of the S&P 500 are on pace to collectively report the first rise in earnings in a year. Since January of 1928, the S&P 500 has logged winning streaks of nine days or more only 32 times. The last streak of 10 days or more was the 12-day winning streak back in September of 95. That's from today's Wall Street Journal. Number three, we've got ourselves a new island. What? Yep. An undersea volcano erupted off of Japan three weeks ago, and it provided a rare view of the birth of some new land. This is an unnamed undersea volcano located about half a mile off the southern coast of Iwo Jima. It started erupting on the 21st of October, and within 10 days, the ashen rocks piled up on the shallow seabed, and its tip rose just above the surface. And by early in November, it became a new island. Interesting. How about that? Uh, It's unnamed as of yet. How big is this surface area? Oh, very small. Okay. Very small. Uh, about 328 feet in diameter. Could you stand on it? 66, yeah, 66 feet above the sea. Even though it's hot lava? Well, well I mean, you asked if you could stand on as far as its size. I don't know if it's temperature. Oh, that's what I was just wondering. I like mean, you get on the, in your shoes would melt. I mean, I don't know how, how in what depth you want me to get into these news stories. I didn't check. <laughs> For I mean, like, just you know, a natural question. Ground like, temperature. I mean, for goodness sake. Can you build anyway, a house there? That's for ABC I mean, News. And number four, yeah. Tracy Chapman made history hey. last night at the 57th Annual Country Music Association Awards because her 1988 88 song, Fast Car, which was a huge hit this year uh, by Luke Combs. It was named Song of the Year last night, making her the first black songwriter to win in the category. And that's your top four. Interesting. Okay, the Luke Luke Combs version. I I, I bet I hear it like five times a day. I'm kind of meh about it. I want to hear Tracy Chapman. Yeah, it'd be good to hear. That's the best version. I I think his version is very similar to hers. This doesn't seem like much of a remake. No. And uh, but he also won for single of the year. All right, fine. For fast. Well, good for Tracy Chapman. Yeah. Right. It's a resurgence. She wasn't there. Well, she's very reclusive, isn't yeah. she? Right? Yeah, she wasn't there. I mean, but she, she hasn't did, toured she, forever. She did send a nice thing saying, I, you know, I think I, I think she said I wrote this song 35 years ago. Yeah, of course. She said it's really gratifying that so many people, are new people are loving it Interesting. again. Interesting. She's largely disappeared, hasn't she? Yeah, she yeah. was such a huge star. She sure was. I love it. I love, I that, love that song. Me too. I mean, I love that voice, everything about it. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah. Okay, we need to step away. But when we come back, speaking of incredible people, we're going to be talking about Sojourner Truth. Oh, my gosh. And if that's a name you don't know, or if that's a a person that you don't know, man, you have got to stay close. We're glad you're along. Thursday edition, The Ride Home. One of the more interesting things over these last few years is that there has been a deeper, uh, more inclusive, I would say intellectual heft dive into past black lives. 
Of course, everyone knows Harriet Tubman, Mm -hmm. but there's been much written about other men and women of the time that slavery was finding its way through its end here in the United States of America. One of those names is Sojourner Truth, and we're here today to talk about Sojourner Truth. Uh, Our guest is joining us is O.B. Tyler Todd. He is pastor of Third Baptist Church in Marion, Illinois, adjunct professor of church history at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. He's written a review. In many ways, it's a review, but it's a deeper exploration of Sojourner Truth was a double woman. Sojourner Truth was a double woman in more ways than one. It's appearing right now online at CT, Christianity Today. Obi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So John brings up a good question, which is, you know, we've heard of uh, Frederick Douglass. We've heard of Harriet Tubman. Uh, why not more attention given to Sojourner Truth? That's really the the reason I wrote the article. I think the reason that Nancy Kester wrote her book, and I think the answer is uh, Sojourner was a woman of faith, but she took a long road. She often um, was entangled in certain extreme groups. Um, She was even involved in a cult at one point, uh, which I think is why her name is so apt. Her name, she renamed herself Sojourner, uh, and she she had a journey. Her life was a journey. Um, she was a woman of conviction, and I think one of the main reasons that she's often skipped over is because she had so much conviction that um, she often spoke up against her other fellow women's rights and black rights advocates, including Frederick Douglass. Interesting. So Sojourner Truth, I mean, what an incredible name. Uh, you just said, Obi, it wasn't her original name. Go back to the origin story, who she was uh, and how she became a slave, and then how she became a free woman with great influence on our Christian life. Yes. Um, it's a just a compelling tale, uh, one that was actually told in her autobiography uh, that was published in 1850. Um, she was born Isabella Baumfree or Baumfree. Um, she was a Dutch-speaking, originally Dutch-speaking African-American woman. Her mother, uh, who she called Mama Bet, was actually born in Congo. Uh, she was herself an enslaved African-American woman. Um, and really, the only thing that Sojourner knew uh, growing up was what Mama Bet told her, which was that there was a God in heaven who heard her and who saw her. Um, and so she grew up thinking that um, that God was like a big man. Um, you know, I think even Nancy Kester says in her book that she she basically thought God was like, a, like George Washington or someone. Um, and uh, that's really only all that she knew growing up. Uh, she grew up in a slave community. She was owned by a Dutch man and... At that time, in 1827, New York passed a law that uh, all slaves had to be emancipated by 1827. This man had made empty promises that she was going to be emancipated before then. He kind of um, didn't really hold true to those promises, and and at one point actually sold away her son. Uh, And it was after that time that she felt she needed to run away. One of the things that she really held true really was proud of later in life was that she claimed she did not quote unquote run away. She walked, Hmm. uh, she, uh, she walked and she was eventually caught 
But the house that she came to was uh, the house of a Dutch reformed couple. And when her enslaver caught her, this couple stood up for her and offered to pay um, the basically the price that this man supposedly said that she owed him. And so uh, at really at the time of her of her liberation or her emancipation, she was redeemed. Um, and it was that man who redeemed her. Uh, it was the first time in her life that she was told uh, that God alone was her master. Um, and wow. two months later, she had a powerful conversion. Uh, there was a scorching, hot, uh, burning light that she said she felt was looking into her soul. Uh, in that light, she said there was a mass of lies and shame that that came over her. And she said she felt as if she was going to be scorched to death by this light, this unbearable light, um, a holy light, you might say. And then a friend, that's, the, that's all she, she, she describes him as, a friend came and, and covered her and sheltered her from this, this, um, this scorching light. And then a voice came and said, it is Jesus. And uh, at that point, uh, she realized that this Jesus was the one who was going to come and, and cover that massive sin. Um, and it's at that point that she, she claimed she became a Christian, she was saved. It was also the point she became an abolitionist and became a preacher. Uh, and so that's that's part of her narrative, her her uh, testimony, if you will, is that the point that she was saved is also the, the, the point in which she really saw her life's calling as an abolitionist. Um, and it was that same voice that told her that she did not need to hate white people, but that she could love them and that she could love them with the truth. So she was a powerful woman. Uh, she stood up for her 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 convictions, but she was also some a, a very compassionate woman. She stood almost six feet tall. Uh, this is a woman who, who, who smoked a pipe. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a strong woman, uh, but also a very tender-hearted and gentle woman. And and I and I believe, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the article, is that it was because uh, she believed she had been saved by Jesus Christ, and she wanted to share that love that he had shown her. Boy, it's a powerful story. We're talking about Sojourner Truth with O.B. Tyler Todd, uh, article in uh, CT. You can see it online right now. Um, so she's a uh, a female preacher in a male-dominated world um, in a time that that seemed, must have seemed preposterous. Um, talk about her, um, how she divided her time. So she, you know, she was, uh, uh, she was speaking in favor of abolition, but she also was in favor of women's rights. I, how did, how did that, those two things come together? Yes. Um, well, it was really after her first, her first ministry, if you will, was abolitionism. Of course, that was the uh, the dominant movement, at least the social movement at the time. That's not to say, you know, you had the social, you had, you had the Seneca Falls Convention. You did have women's rights before the Civil War, but it were it was really after the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of the Civil War that you had uh, the women's rights movement gaining more steam. And uh, so she she really, I think, always was a women's rights advocate and um, and a, a, a black rights advocate um, just by virtue of being both an African-American and a woman. Um, but she after the war, she really started to 
uh, speak out in favor of women's rights. Uh, but she also came into a little bit of friction with uh, suffragists uh, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, like Susan B. Anthony, um, just as she had called out Frederick uh, Douglass for being a more or less uh, someone who wanted war. She she was a peacemaker, and she didn't believe uh, in. Um, she wasn't. She wasn't. Uh, I guess you would say someone who wanted to invite war like Douglas did. And just as she kind of experienced some friction with Douglas, she also experienced some friction with suffragists because there was a time where many women's rights advocates who were white women believed that they should get. Uh, a vote before black men. Mm. And so she was someone who had to uh, grapple with the tension uh, that resided within the women's rights movement itself. So so from our 21st century perspective, we just kind of think, okay, well, the abolitionists and the women's rights movement kind of had a common cause and they all sang kumbaya, but that was, really wasn't the case. Uh, there was oftentimes uh, a lot of tension and a lot of uh, differing worldviews. And so I think that's to her credit as well, that she was still able to stand up and speak truthfully. I mean, this is a woman who spoke so powerfully from the the platform that there were white men who doubted that she was even a woman. Um, there was a crowd, a, a heckling crowd in Indiana that where the men uh, even uh, insisted that she bare her breast in public to prove that she was a woman. Um, I mean, can you imagine such a figure no. um, just defying the stereotypes of that time? So so she was speaking truth, but uh, true to her name, but she was also speaking truth to her own camp. And and at the women, there was a women's rights convention, uh, I believe, in 1850, which is when she was recorded as praying to the Lord, Lord, make me a double woman. And at that time, in that context, she meant, of course, Lord, you know, give me double strength so that I can, I can bear this burden and, and perform this task that you put before me. And, and one of the reasons I wrote the, the article is to to insist or to suggest that uh, she was, in fact, a double woman in several ways. Not only did she campaign for two different movements, uh, but she was also someone who could speak truth both to. Um, those she agreed with and she disagreed with. I, I really do believe, as Nancy Kester wrote, she lived in unto her name. Uh, it wasn't just a descriptive name. It was also a goal, if you will, for her life. She always wanted to be consistent with the truth, no matter where that took her. Uh, and I believe that that allowed her to both love her enemies and to reprove some of her best friends. And I believe that was her, her greatest or most admirable quality. Hmm. Obi Tyler Todd joins us. He wrote a wonderful piece at CT Christianity Today. Sojourner Truth was a double woman in more ways than one. Uh, Toby, uh, unfortunately, our, our our time is a little short here, and um, I love the fact mm-hmm. that Sojourner Truth asks several questions throughout her life, significant questions: Ain't I a woman? And is God dead? And um, it, for a further reading, if people are interested, because clearly you've stoked our interest here, uh, this fascinating historical figure who did straddle uh, many different worlds, mm-hmm. what should people read? Where should we look at? What are the things that are significant that if we wanted to go for further inquiry into about Sojourner Truth? Yes, uh, that's an excellent question. And of course, that's the reason historians do their work is so that people can read for themselves. The first resource would, of course, 
I, I would be remiss if I didn't include Nancy Kester's work uh, that I was reviewing in CT. That's called We Will Be Free, The Life and Faith of Sojourner Truth that just most recently came out. Um, Nancy is an excellent historian. She's also done a religious biography of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Hmm. Uh, and also would would point to um, her autobiography. Um, that's Sojourner Truth's autobiography was published in 1850 called The Narrative of Sojourner Truth. Uh, I think a lot of people today, uh, rather than reading secondary sources, should just read from the people themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's an excellent resource to read from her. And I think it's also important, one thing I did want to mention is there were things this woman, Sojourner Truth, went went through such hardships in her life um, that the people during her life who wanted her to share every aspect of her life, she was insistent that there were just things apart her life, um, chapters that were so hard, trials that were so gritty. She said, no, that's just going to be between me and the Lord. She didn't want to include those. Um, but even then, um, that narrative of Sojourner Truth was so compelling that uh, many people read it and, it, and it really catapulted her to to national fame. Well, we want to thank you for sharing all that with us today, Obi. Excellent work, Obi. Very That's nice. Obi Tyler Todd, pastor of Third Baptist Church in Marion, Illinois, also adjunct professor of church history at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. You can read his story called Sojourner Truth Was a Double Woman in More Ways Than One, CT Online. Thank you, Obi. Thank you for having me. do this in your house will make rice have a meal with the rice and then left have leftover rice put it in the fridge and then it essentially just goes to waste over the next several days oh no i always eat it do you but here's the thing it's all i find a i find it hard to figure out how best to reheat it Mm -hmm. so if you're reheating it with other liquidy things you can put it in a skillet yeah whatever but, As a standalone. But if you, the only way I can, the microwave uh, to me is kind of the the best route. I often tried to put it in boiling water, like to reimmerse. But then it's super wet. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know. Right. I I love rice. Do you? Yes. As a kid, I despised it. Now really? I tolerate it. Yeah, but the rice that was available when you were a kid yeah. was really bad. My sisters ate chicken and rice soup like it was their only job, like it was their staple. Chicken with rice soup. I don't know why. And I would be like, oh, please, not that again. That's not rice at its best. I don't think so. Okay, it sounds like another internet health hack, but if you cook some pasta or white rice and let it cool overnight in the refrigerator, by the next day, of course, some of the natural starches in the food will have transformed into healthier versions called resistant starches, Mm. which have been linked to a range of health benefits, including lower blood sugar, better gut health, and a reduced risk of certain types of cancer. The idea that you could change the health properties of a food by merely cooking and cooling it may sound too good to be true, but according to experts, there is something to it. Cooking starchy foods can cause some changes to their structure that may benefit your health. Really? Starch resistant. Okay. Resistant starch. Is Where are you a, reading from? I'm sorry. From uh, yesterday's New York Times. Resistant starch is a type of fiber that is naturally present in many types of plant foods, such as grains, beans, nuts, seeds, green bananas, plantains. But it also can be increased in other foods that mainly contain regular starch, like rice and pasta and potatoes, after they are cooked and then recooked. 
would you do it? Sure. Because cooking and cooling... I love leftover pasta. Yeah, me too. Cooking and cooling the food's starch molecules to become tightly packed together, making them more difficult to digest. When this happens, some of the starch becomes resistant, meaning that its sugar molecules are not as easily broken apart and absorbed into your bloodstream as they normally would be. And so there are the health benefits there. What the heck? I am fine eating leftover pasta cold. Oh, no. Yeah. What? I'm fine with Cold? It. With what on it? Tomato sauce. Cold tomato some, sauce? Some variety of tomato sauce. It could be meat sauce. It could be And the sauce marinara. is cold, too? The sauce is cold. No. I think it's in. delicious. No, it's horrible. It sounds okay. really, really I bad. I think you're wrong about that. But... Right? That's okay. Okay. Well, that's, be, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm glad to know that. Mm-hmm. And a recent trial of more than 900 people with Lynch syndrome, a genetic condition that increases the risk of developing various types of cancer, researchers split the participants into two groups, one that took 30 grams of resistant starch uh, each day for up to four hours. Another took a placebo. 20 years later, the researchers found that while there was no change in the participants' risk of colorectal cancer, those who took the resistant starch supplements were half as likely as those who took the placebo to develop other types of cancers. What? Who knew? So we need to be cooking our rice and pasta the day before. Yes. Or at least make... You know, this is good news for me because I cannot predict or approximate... Rice or pasta. Oh, you mean, I've showed this it. before. Not. I am so bad at that. You know how some people say, yeah. how many people were in the room? And they say, well, I'm bad at counting numbers of people. Sure. I'm fine with that. You're bad with rice and pasta? Horrible. Pasta is pretty easy, I think. Rice is a little bit of a mystery to me. Well, how, so you're, you're easy with pasta? Yeah. I think I get Are it. you sure? Pretty, uh, yeah, I'm pretty confident about that. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, um... Go back to the cold pasta again. Yeah. Seriously? Okay. So if you make homemade marinara, okay, like, I mean nothing sure, yeah. out of a jar. You, you right. start with, you've got your olive Crushed oil. Peppers. You've got your garlic. You've got your San Marzano tomatoes. Mm-hmm. You've cooked it down. You've added it to your pasta, and you have an enjoyable yummy, yummy. meal. Mm-hmm. Then you put it in a, a glass container, leave it overnight. Sitting like, out or in the fridge? No, in the fridge. When you come down the next day, it's lunchtime or dinner time, you pull that out. There's really no need to heat it up. No, no, it's it. so tomatoey delicious. It's just yeah. perfect. I can't do that. It has to be warm. Mm. I well, I'm I'm just asking you to open your mind. Hold my mouth. Yesterday, uh, U.S. News & World Report released their Best Places to Retire, the 2023 edition. And um, they wanted to figure out, uh, look at the the sort of high marks of good health care, low taxes for retirees, and happy residents who currently live in these best places to retire. Now, um, I'm not going to spoil this because I, I, I want to give you the best place to retire first, and then I'll go number 10 downward to number one again. Would all that right. be all right? Best okay. place to retire is... All the places. Boca Raton. In the entire country. You're saying Boca Raton? Uh, I'm saying Phoenix. Mm-hmm. I'm saying uh, Scottsdale. Um, I'm saying uh, San Diego. Mm-hmm. Might be expensive, probably. Lovely, lovely places. Um, I'd say... Charleston, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. 
I'd say Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Yep. Well, you'd be wrong. Okay. According to U.S. News and World Report, the best place to retire for retirees in 2023 is Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. What? Mm-hmm. The Pennsylvania's capital city packages the aforementioned good health care, low taxes for retirees, and happy residents in that small metro area. Now, let me go number 10 back to number one. Okay. In this entire country, the number 10 best place to retire? Yes. Someplace special. Pittsburgh, PA. Really? Number 10. Number nine? Youngstown, Ohio. Come on. Number eight, Daytona Beach, Florida. Number seven, York, PA. What? Number six, New York, New York. Can you imagine moving to New York City? To retire? To retire. No. I I would see old people in New York City and I think, oh, you poor thing. The number fifth best place in the country to retire, Allentown, Pennsylvania. The number fourth best place in the country to retire, Scranton, Pennsylvania. Come on. The number third best place in the country to retire, Lancaster, PA. The number two best place to retire in the country, Reading, Pennsylvania. And the aforementioned number one, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. What is going on with Pennsylvania? You take eight out of the top ten spots to retire in this country. Other than Daytona Beach and New York City. That's wacky. Yep. Who's going to retire to Youngstown, Ohio? (laughs) Or to Allentown? I don't know. I mean, there's a gigantic list here. It goes on and on and on. Like the top 100 places in the country to retire. And Pittsburgh, number 10. Pittsburgh, number 10. Okay, so what are the... um like uh, the data markers. points that mm-hmm. are causing them to come to these conclusions? Harrisburg, as I said, um, uh, number one. The analysis includes data about affordability, cost of living, desirability, happiness, retiree taxes, the local job market, and access to quality health care, while other factors such as personal preferences or proximity to family certainly influence where Americans choose to retire. The metrics that U.S. News considered can contribute to a high quality of life. The ranking compares the top 150 metro populous areas in the United States. Harrisburg is the top-rated hospital in the United States, according to U.S. News World Report. Penn State Health Milton Hershey Medical Center, which U.S. News nationally ranks in orthopedics, neurology, neurosurgery in nearby Hershey. U.S. News also rated local wow. hospitals, UPMC, Harrisburg, as high-performing in five adult specialties, including geriatrics. The metro's up area to major East Coast cities, such as Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia, means that residents are within driving distance of their hospitals and medical centers as well. Local sports fans cheer for the Harrisburg Senators, a minor league baseball team, Harrisburg Heat Arena Soccer, and the Hershey Bears Ice Hockey Team. Penn State is not that far away. Uh, also offers age 60, resident 60 and over to audit undergraduate courses for free. Also in Harrisburg, 
coffee shops, a diverse array of residents, live theater, Harrisburg Symphony Orchestra, museums, art galleries, and classes offer a plethora of cultural experiences. City and county parks and the 20-mile capital area Greenbelt provide trails and green spaces for enjoying the outdoors. You can have a really good quality of life in Harrisburg, says Joy Daniels, a broker and owner at Joy Daniels Real Estate Group in Harrisburg. It would be a fabulous place to retire because you would never run out of something to do. Plus, there's seasonal attractions as well. It goes on and on and on. And low taxes for retirees. That is crazy. This is interesting. This is what U.S. News Report says. Thanks to Pennsylvania's tax friendliness, I don't see that to be true. <laughs> right. Harrisburg can be a good spot for retirees. I mean, it's much friendlier than New Jersey, which is directly to our east. Pennsylvania does not tax Social Security benefits, pension distribution, or retired military pay. Mm. IRA withdrawals and 401k distributions taken after age 59 and a half are also generally exempt from state income tax. And those who plan to take part a part-time or seasonal job after retirement should also note that the Keystone State has a flat state income tax rate of 3.07%. I don't know. Does that mean that we should be grateful for what we have? We should be. Well, look, I mean, if you grew up here in the 70s, weren't we we told Pittsburgh was someplace special? And it it always felt that way, that it was kind of like this little hidden gem. Yes. Now we've kind of grown blasé about it. We've seen a rise of, like a lot of places in the country, of crime and homelessness and whatnot. And so we kind of go, we're not doing so great here like we used to. Mm -hmm. The mills are gone. We've heard that for decades and decades. And our kids are leaving. This population growth has been stagnant for many, many, many years. Still a good place. Number 10 in the country. That's incredible. That's incredible. And all those Pennsylvania places are crazy. It is crazy. When you think back to people that you went to high school with, um, Lex, I'm going to ask you about this too. Do you have an inordinate number of people who have stayed in Pittsburgh? My circle of friends have not. Okay. No. Okay. I think I might be the odd man out. Okay. I mean, I, you know. I look at my friends, my high school friends on Facebook, uh, my best friends in San Diego, other places, other people are in California, okay. other people are in Texas. They're, they're scattered. You? Have, you, have your friends I mean, stayed? M- most all of them have. have and stayed. you know what is even funnier is the inordinate number of people who grew up in my neighborhood who, who have in stayed the in the neighborhood. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I like Who've that. bought their parents' house, mm-hmm. or they've, you know, ended up moving a few streets over from their parents' house and stayed close by. Yeah, yeah. Lex, um, what about you? Of your high school friend, I think she was not here. Uh, were your high school friends? Did they stay here locally, or did they move elsewhere? Um, a lot of my friends, uh, well, they went to college elsewhere. Yeah, a lot sure. of the time. Oh, okay. Um, usually around two hours away. A lot of them went to Slippery Rock, honestly. Okay. So not crazy far. Yeah. But okay. um, yeah, right. I think a lot of people, at least people in my circles, went a, very far away. I mean, I was also one of them. I went to school in Ohio. So, <laughs> But don't you think that's true? I think for the most part, people tend to stay where they're born. Wouldn't you think that's true? You want to be close to family, don't you? I don't, Not everybody wants to be close to family. I would say the majority of people want to be close to family, right? I don't know if that's the majority of people. I mean, I would like to think it is, but I don't know that. In your family, is that true? Yes. My family, it's true. Mm-hmm. 
Lexi's family, it's true. Look, we're the majority of the three of us here. That's 100% majority. Majority rules in the ride home. Right? Uh, you know what happened uh, this afternoon that I was surprised to see is uh, Joe Manchin announced that he's not going to run for re-election. Oh, really? Uh-huh. But he still stay close to home. What Isn't do you think, that Joe? interesting? Joe Manchin will become a lobbyist. No, he won't. Sure he will. Kidding me? All that power? He has a tremendous He will not let power. that go to waste. He'll take that to the bank times 10. I don't think he'll become. Well, I could be wrong. But what, what's it going to be? Who's going to take that seat? Who's going to yeah. run for that seat? Remember uh, Robert Byrd? Sure. I mean, he, he, I like Joe Manchin a lot better than Robert Byrd. He was an icon, Robert Byrd, yeah. in West Virginia politics. Right. And West Virginia After always he produces. Left the KKK. Right. West Virginia always produces these sort of independent thinkers, oversized political yeah. force for yeah. the state of West Virginia. Because Robert Byrd had outsized influence, and surely Joe Manchin did or does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I bet the Democratic Party is throwing themselves a little you celebration right. yeah. because mm-hmm. he's been nothing but a thorn in their side, which is what makes me like him so much. Right. I like people who stir up things in their party. Maybe he'll retire to However, party. not to the extent that we've seen in trying to find a Speaker of the House. Oh. <laughs> I don't mean that. I don't mean that because you know what? That's crazy. Yes, it was. Okay. We need to take a step away. But when we come back, um, what about the locks that you see on bridges? You know, the combination locks? Oh, those things. Or the things? Man, I hate those things. Anyway, there's a new story today about uh, uh, an unexpected place that those are showing up. More locks. More locks. (laughs) We can't get rid of the locks. Anyway, we'll talk about it next. Glad you're along for the ride home. In 2006, an Italian novel, and in then later 2007, a film by the same name called I Want You became famous because a couple sealed locks onto a Roman bridge. And by taking those locks and sealing their love forever, that symbol of eternity, locked metal. Now that lock and that novel and movie has spawned great imitations. I never knew that's where it came from. Yep. Way back. In, and I'm surprised it was that. I, I didn't thought it was longer. I thought it was, went back to the 1950s. But 2006, the book, then 2007, the film, I Want You, has created a host of imitators worldwide. And you see it on bridges mm-hmm. all over the world here in the city of Pittsburgh. What's the bridge here in the city of Pittsburgh by the Carnegie Museum? Right. That bridge. By the Carnegie... Oh, right. The one that goes over to, to, Shenley, Phipps. to Phipps Conservatory yeah. in Shenley Park. That thing is littered with yeah, locks. it is. And Pittsburgh uh, officials have taken bolt cutters to that that's, bridge that's multiple, multiple they, times. They should always do that. The weird thing about those locks is you don't think it's causing a lot of weight, but you get thousands right. and thousands of this. It adds continual weight and structure on these bridges. Yeah. It creates hazardous conditions. Well, it didn't happen at the Fern Hollow Bridge, but you would think it might have. <laughs> anyway, this week... Uh, officials, federal officials at the Grand Canyon made public posts on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram saying, stop with the locks. There's a, a photograph of a park ranger outside the Grand Canyon holding up several locks and a large pair of bolt cutters because apparently this trend is continuing now at the Grand Canyon. And it only is made worse because the the act of Sealing the lock, closing the lock, and then throwing away the key. What the officials are saying is that it is harming wildlife. California condors 
which are populating that area. They're native to California, but they find their way into the Grand Canyon. California condors, they are very curious animals, and they like shiny objects. So when they go and they go to water Mm. in different streams and rivers, they find these keys. Now, this article that I read in uh, today's Washington Post, lovers are leaving locks at the Grand Canyons. Rangers wish they would stop. There's an X-ray of a California condor gigantic bird and inside the stomach are more than several keys to these locks yeah so just another thing to add to people please stop like just don't screw up the place people want to leave their what are they so there's a bridge a particular bridge that they're putting these on in the grand canyon no they're just fences at the grand canyon there's no bridge at the grand canyon there it's just fencing areas and people go there and they've made it a tourist attraction why People are romantic, Kath. That's not romantic. That's just, that. Well, to me... The park ranger said it's vandalism. That's hubris. Mm-hmm. I, I need to look at this beautiful natural wonder, and I have to, I have to mark myself here somehow. Right, right. Like, I mean, that's, like, that's just really ridiculous. Well, you see this again and again, right? It wasn't that long ago that somebody carved their initials in the Coliseum. Remember that? So, you know, people... Tr- that Are sort of ego thing, me? of course. It just you know that's how it is. That's what carve your initials in the Colosseum. It happens all the time. I hate when people carve their initials in trees. You hate leave that? leave the tree out of it. Uh, you know people. What I don't. Like really, it. I don't. Think, I don't think something like that really is necessary. harming the tree. I mean, it's just a well. Wound. Neither. I mean, neither you or I nor are arborists. <laughs> but I just eight hundred three two zero eight two. If you're an arborist, tell us about carving initials. I just initials don't in like this idea that I have to make my mark on the earth somehow. Right, right. Like I have to, I have to indicate that I was here. Right. Well, why? After all, we are dust in the wind. Yeah. <laughs> Same old song. Just a drop of water in the endless sea. Right. I just, I feel like that's, I do feel like it's vandalism. It is vandalism, yeah. It's kind I, of like littering, mm-hmm. only worse. Only, well, I guess it's just lighting scale to, you know. I guess. Horrific things. Are we done? Yeah. Well, we're, I mean, we're done with the four o'clock hour. We're ending the hour on a, on a sad note. No, right? well, I we're, mean, I don't want to be that guy shaking his fist at clouds. No, right? I don't want. I don't want you to. We don't want to do that. Okay. You know what you should do is you should go to visit the Grand Canyon mm. and just be bowled over by how incredible it is. God have you been beauty. to the Grand Canyon? I have not. Oh have my you? gosh! Yes. Mm, oh my go. gosh! It's. Inc- I couldn't even speak. Yeah. When I walked up. Seriously, I remember walking up to it and just... And then you think there's just no point in taking a picture of this. Because it's too massive. Oh. Yeah, how can that encapsulate that? Anyway, we'll be right back for the 5 o'clock edition. We'll be right home. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, greetings. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming along for the 5 o'clock hour of The Ride Home. I'm John Hall, and this is Kathy Emmons. Kath, uh, any interest? Tell me about um, your foray into last night's um, Republican presidential debate. Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Last night, I watched um, several different things on YouTube and a Netflix comedy special and did not even... You didn't watch at all? Didn't even dip my toe in. Nothing? Not one thing. Tell me why. No Um, interest. 
It's a done deal. I wasn't interested. I, I, I guess that's the best way I can put it. Okay. And I was a little disgusted with a portion of the local elections, and right. so I was just a just little had enough. Yeah. Okay. What about you? I watched it. I watched um, a good hour and oh wow, fifteen okay. minutes of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we had uh, Chris Christie, we had Nikki Haley. Yep. We had Tim Scott. Mm-hmm. We had Vivek. Yep. And maybe that's Ron it. DeSantis. Oh, Ron DeSantis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Most of it to me was political posturing and uh, memorized one-liners or pl- uh, party platforms. Mm-hmm. Mm. So no, like actual debating. No, I don't really think that there was. To, uh, to me, it was kind of just mostly one-upmanship. And I, you know, like in retrospect, like today, I'm reading who won last night. I can't say anybody won anything. If anybody won anything, it was former President Trump. Because once again, his absence was looming large and uh, moderated by NBC, Lester Holt was one of the three. Okay. Hugh Hewitt and I forget. There was a woman uh, a woman there. Who I'm sorry, yeah. I don't know the national talkers like I should. Um, <clears throat> Kristen Walker, maybe. No. Uh, Anyway, it was just a lot of posturing. And so early on, I mean, like the first question out of Lester Holt's mouth was about former President Trump. Essentially, if he was here, what would you say to him? And people you know, on the platform went out of their way. First of all, they refused to answer the question. And then when they did finally get around to answering some semblance of the question, they went out of their way of not wanting to offend anyone or speak the truth about anything. Oh, so then it was like... A whole statement of nothing. Pretty much so. From one person to another. There were highlights. There were some gotcha moments. Uh, Vivek, uh, he called Nancy Haley, Dick Cheney Nikki in three-inch three, three inch heels, which got the audience uh, up up and on its feet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Nikki Haley came back and called him scum. Oh, wow. So there was a lot of that going on. Um, Tim Scott looked like he was running on empty, that once he got past his uh, talking points, he really had nothing else to say. Okay. Uh, And I would say the same about DeSantis and all of them. Chris Christie. Chris Christie wasn't bombastic in any way? or Maybe. I mean, it just felt like a lot of the same. This is the third debate. And to be honest, I've watched all three. I've seen the show before. Nobody stands out and you go, that's who I'm going to vote for. Really? Not that you would have a chance to, because I do believe we're going to go back and do the rematch of Biden versus Trump. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Our primary is so late Mm -hmm. that a lot of people will be dropped out by then. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm interested in a couple of those people. I would vote for... Several. I would vote would for three you? of them. Yeah, really? three out of the five. I can't say that. I n- no, I'm not okay. really interested. It d- doesn't light my fire at all. Not at all. And as a counterpoint to programming, President Trump had his own um, gathering last night, which apparently was very well attended. What I'm reading is typical same talking points, grievances, grievances, and all that. And by midway through, a lot of the crowd had left. So, so what does what does he prove out of doing that? That he just refuses to be put in any 
structure whatsoever. He'll he'll set the structure. He'll right. set the place. He'll set the time. Right. So as long as everything is under his is within his choices, then he's he's, still in he's willing to say yes. Yeah. If he's not in control of the circumstances, then he doesn't have to. Well, do you it. get his point. He has nothing to gain by being on that debate stage. Nothing at all, because also would be would be attack after attack after attack. Yeah, and he's so far ahead. He's ahead in the polls by a mile or. I mean, it's not even a game. Those people on that stage last night, they would wish for that that lead in the polls that he already has. They're tracking at 2 or 3%. There's not a whole lot there. On yesterday's program, I talked about that Jonah Goldberg piece that came out last week talking about um, kind of the the left wing of the Democratic Party. Basically, his article was Is saying— all left wing? Well— not. No, he was saying it's not. He was saying that the Democratic Party has a MAGA wing, just like the Republican Party has a MAGA wing. So there are the 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 centrists, like the classic Democrat, classic Republican, sure. and each one of them has a fringe yeah. element. And neither party knows exactly what to do with the fringe element. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Republicans have been dealing with this for the last, since 2012. Right. But the Democrats are starting to deal with it in a different way. Well, so when I look at former President Trump and his... Or being confronted with it in a different way, they don't actually know how to deal with it, I don't think. So whether it's the Democrat in that fringe, what percentage of the Democrats are that fringe? And you look at, you know, the MAGA crowd, that's 30%, 35% Okay, so say that's 30 and 35% of the Republican Party. Say that the left wing is 30 to 35% of the Democratic Party. Then it just makes me wonder how long it's going to be before the center parts of the Democratic Party and Republican Party make their own party. I don't know. I don't think they have the guts or the wherewithal to do anything. And I think we're going to just see... It depends on how much they start to despise their... You know, they're fringe elements. Believe me, there's a lot to dislike no, about, about the Democrats. About both. About How about the, both Especially. Fringes? I would say especially. Truly, no, I would. I'd say both of them. So I, I would think that people go, I, I don't have, I'm not even going to go there with those guys on the on the Democrat. I'm not going to even, even think about that. So if push comes to shove, I'm voting like I did before. That's all. That's what's going to happen. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. We need to take a step away. But when we come back, what a fabulous story. We're going to talk about the hymn Amazing Grace, a cultural history of this song that is celebrating its 250th year. You have to hear this interview. This book is fabulous. It'll make you look at the hymn differently and the hymn writer. So stay close for the ride home. Amazing Grace, how sweet. Sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind. We know that song. Most people in this world know that beautiful hymn. This is the 250th anniversary of the publication of Amazing Grace. For myself, I remember uh, way back in the early 1970s, I was a choir boy at a small Catholic school. And as was the time, occasionally, thankfully, 
United States servicemen would come back deceased. And one time, there was a, a local a local boy. That's the best way I could describe it. I'm sure he was in his early, he was in his late teens and early twenties. Came back, and there was much discussion in the choir room about singing that song, "Amazing Grace." Now, as you might imagine, it's not one of the top ten Catholic hymns. We were used to high liturgy, so there, I remember there being this discussion back and forth, back and forth, and the choir master instructed us, the choirs, the, all the young boys in the choir, we will sing this song with great passion and fervor. Those were his exact words. I'll I'll never forget it. It scared me. I didn't know what fervor meant. (laughs) But I do remember that funeral, and I remember the great grief of that time. That's my story of Amazing Grace. My guess is that you've got one as well. But we're happy to welcome to the uh, show right now James Walvin. James Walvin is Professor of History Emeritus at the University of York in the United Kingdom. He was published widely on slavery and modern social history. His most recent book is called A World Transformed, Slavery in the Americas and the Origins of Global Power. But we're here today to talk about his new book on Amazing Grace. James, we welcome you to the show. How are you, sir? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure. James, what can account for a song that has so much power um, over generations and over different cultures? It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, can you think of another hymn that's had such a global impact? Um, It's a complicated story, and it comes in waves, and it takes off particularly after um, 1970, that Judy Collins version. But it it goes deeper than that. I think uh, for for religious people, the words have a fantastic significance. And I think for African-Americans, particularly the the, the third verse, people who've gone through hardship and have come out the other end. I mean, uh, people recognize this not merely as a kind of religious um, motif, but it actually has a kind of humane, global sense to it, so that even people who don't believe can find some kind of comfort in the words. And that's quite in addition to the remarkable kind of uh, haunting tune that we all know. And uh, one of the great uh, successes commercially uh, is the hymn played by pipers, uh, where there are no words attached at all. And that's sold in its millions. So it's a combination of the music and particularly for people who have got religious inclination, particularly the words. The words mean something for their faith and for the way they think of the world and the way they look to the future. Yes. James, talk to us about the author of the hymn. He himself, um, not of exactly uh, the purity strain, lived Mm -hmm. a very difficult life, Uh, a fascinating story, but uh, he found solace in the, the writing of these words. John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, is an extraordinary figure. I mean, he had been a slave captain. He'd been a slave trader on the coast of West Africa, and he'd shipped enslaved Africans into the Americas. He'd delivered a cargo to Charleston, um, South Carolina, um, and he brutalized the Africans, as did all slave traders. He was cruel to them. And yet he saw the light eventually. He turned. He realized that this was a great abomination and a great sin. And yet... He had to hedge his bets because he had done some terrible things that he didn't really want to talk about. But what you need to remember about John Newton, who turned to become um, a preacher and a hymn writer, and we remember him to this day for that, is that 
he wasn't unusual. I mean, there were tens of thousands of people on both sides of the Atlantic, 17th and 18th century, who saw nothing in Congress, nothing contradictory between being a slave owner and being deeply Christian, deeply religious. I mean, it's one of the great puzzles of, of young students find it very, very hard to get their head around that you could be uh, a Christian and go about such ungodly business. So John Newton opens up a whole series of very interesting discussions and debates about about slavery, about the Western world, about how decent people did godless things. Hmm. So what... Uh... What accounted for his turning around? He he became a devout man. He, he was brought up in a very devout home. His mother was very devout in London, and uh, she bought she went to uh, various nonconformist dissenting churches in London. She loved hymn singing, which is what he grew up learning hymns of Isaac Watt, and uh, so he was in. He had that sort of deep deep education, really, in, in worship, and drifted into a seafaring life and the violence that that involved. Um, but he was always interested in theology. He was a tremendous reader of books. Uh, he bought books wherever he landed at sea. Uh, he read them. He, he became a master of the Bible. And he, he engaged with theology in a way that very few people did who weren't trained to be theologians. So, But the thing that turned him was a great storm in the Atlantic where he almost lost his life. And he felt that being saved from the wreck of the ship that almost went down, being saved from that was the Lord showing him his grace, that uh, you didn't have to prove yourself. If you had grace, it was there for the taking. And that was the very great theme, of course, that um, President Obama played to in the when he gave the funeral oration in 2015 at that extraordinary moment when he, he President Obama, sang Amazing Grace. We're talking with James Walvin. His brand new book is called Amazing Grace, A Cultural History of the Beloved Hymn. James, uh, everyone knows the story, or a lot of people know the story of Silent Night, which was sort of uh, created of a, a spark of genius on a Christmas Eve after a broken organ. But but what about Amazing Grace? I mean, John Newton, did he labor over the song? Was there inspiration? How, how did all that come together? It's very hard to tell because he, uh, Newton was in the habit of writing a hymn to uh, accompany his sermons at this small parish church in Buckinghamshire in England in the 1760s and 70s. He wrote a hymn for every sermon, and this hymn was to accompany what he was going to say in the, uh, um, in the sermon that particular week, and it was first performed in January 1773. Now, the music that we're familiar with today was not the music that they, they used then. That didn't actually come together until the 1830s. But uh, Newton uh, wrote this hymn just as he wrote many others. I don't think he thought of this as being uh, a particular kind of um, brilliant one. It was not something that he thought was stood out. There's no evidence that he thought that this was an amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. It was just yet another hymn that he... uh, produced for the the parishioners, the ordinary parishioners of a small English parish. And what he could never, ever have imagined is that it would become the global anthem. Hmm. We're talking to James Walvin. The new book is called Amazing Grace, A Cultural History of the Beloved Hymn. James, with a 
a song that's as well-known and well-loved as Amazing Grace. You know, certain legends, I'm sure, arise around it. And so I kind of want to get back to uh, the actual story of it. But, but something that I have heard and read both is that John Newton uh, was convicted of his sin, came to faith, um, but continued his slave trading ways for a bit until he realized what the implications on his life were. Um, and then, of course, the rest of his life happened with the pastorate and the hymn writing and all of that. Is that a, a correct timeline? It's sort of correct. I mean, he, he he continued to be a slave trader when he was uh, a deeply religious man. He would he would walk the deck uh, as the ship plowed across the Atlantic at night, um, with the slaves, the enslaved Africans below, penned in like animals. And he would think about theology, and he'd write letters, to, love letters to his wife back in England. And uh, he didn't see any kind of incongruity in what he was doing and what he believed in. But that, as I said a little earlier, that is true of. Uh, endless numbers of people, whether they were planters or ordinary men working on the slave ships. They saw nothing incongruous or contradictory between slave trading and their religion. Something changes in the late 18th century. The Western world begins to turn against it, and John Newton was one of them. John Newton turns against the slave trade quietly, but very effectively. And by the end of his life, I mean, he died in 1807, which is the year the English, the British rather, abolished the slave trade. Uh, by then, he had become a great advocate of abolition. He saw the light, he changed his mind, and he campaigned against it. He became very influential. And that's not to say that um, his earlier life was um, was not um, marked by violence and wickedness. Um, he had to come to terms with that in some kind of strange way, and he did that between himself and his maker. Hmm. James, as you first joined us, I recounted my introduction in some ways to the to the hymn as a choir boy at a Vietnam uh, soldier's funeral. I mean, it, it, the yeah. idea of a wretch like me, I remember that line. Mm-hmm. It, it, that also is a scary thing to recognize that, that I'm a wretch. That yeah. You're the wretch. Everybody's, yeah. Everybody right. who's singing, it's the wretch. A wretch right? like me. Yeah. So, right. it, it, of right. course, it's become a worldwide phenomenon. Now, what about you personally, your introduction or your crossroads of taking this song? in your own life. Can you tell us that story? Yes, I was a choir boy in what? England at an Anglican church, Episcopalian church uh, in, in Manchester. Uh, started in 1948 uh, until I left the church in 1960. And um, I must have attended a thousand services one way or another. I tried to do the sums. And I, we, we would sing at services three times a week. So I, you know, I sang many hundreds of times. And not once can I remember singing Amazing Grace. Not once. It wasn't in the hymnals huh. of the Anglican church at the time. The, 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 the Church of England has been very slow on any number of fronts, as it happens, but on this one as well. Um, they left it to the Methodists and the Baptists. Um, they, they, the, the Church of England didn't like enthusiasm, the kind of enthusiasm that you find in Baptist and Methodist churches. The, the Anglican Church didn't like that. You only have to see the way the Anglican Church performs around the modern monarchy and you, to, to get some sense right. of that. Sure. It's restrained. It, it's, just, it's very restrained and peculiar. Anyway, and uh, we never sang Amazing Grace, to my knowledge, but I came across it. In, you know, I spent a lot of time in the U.S. Uh, researching on slavery, working there, teaching there, visiting regularly, and you you can't enter the United States without coming to terms with Amazing Grace at some point or other. It's it's become ubiquitous. It's it's, it's almost like the air you breathe. Mm-hmm. But the, the real turning point for me was that remarkable moment in 2015 when, when Obama sang it 
and uh, this vast congregation in the College of Charleston's basketball stadium rose uh, as a person to sing along with their president. And they all knew the, the, the hymn word perfectly. It wasn't on the order sheet, but they just sang it. They knew it. And here's Obama. Uh, now, uh, what, uh, whatever your feelings about Obama, you, no one could say he's got a good singing voice. You know, <laughs> uh, he's got he's a man of many, many great qualities, but singing's not one of them. But it was an electrifying moment, an absolutely electrifying moment of political audacity, really. Um, and I thought, th- th- what is it about that hymn? Well, what is it about that man? But what is it about that hymn, that town? Charleston, that college, the College of Charleston, and the man who wrote that hymn, they all seemed to come together because John Newton wrote the hymn, but John Newton had delivered Africans to that town. And here is the son of an, of an African singing a song written by a slave trader in a college that had been segregationist right up until the 1960s. Um, you know, there's a, a strange historical mix going mm-hmm. on that swirls around the story of Amazing Grace. And I thought, mm. why not write a book about it? Yeah, well, the book is called Amazing Grace, A Cultural History of the Beloved Hymn. It is so fascinating. We're talking to author James Walvin. James, we need to take a break, but let's continue the conversation after we return. James Walvin about his brand new work called Amazing Grace, a cultural history of the beloved hymn. So James, uh, let's talk about the uh, the different recordings over the years. As you joined us a, a short while ago, we played the Judy Collins version, but of course there have been many, many incredible versions. Aretha Franklin as well. Uh, you talked about the uh, the bagpipe without the lyrics version, of course. Uh, talk about that and, and the sweep of the different versions. Judy Collins made that extraordinary recording in 1970, in the midst of the, the great upheavals of the Vietnam War, and hoped to bring some kind of peace and tranquility, some kind of balm, um, and recorded it in that little chapel at Columbia University cha- um, campus. Um, no one at the recording company realized what was going to happen. It took off like a rocket, it sold millions, and people weren't expecting it. It was promptly recorded a year later by uh, a British regiment that was disbanding and amalgamating in a different way. Uh, And that sold in millions. And then, after that, uh, Aretha Franklin recorded that quite extraordinary version in Los Angeles for the choir behind her, which one of the great um, gospel performances of all time. So you have three major performances that embedded themselves in popular culture in not just the United States, but worldwide. But in fact, after that, any number of artists performed it. There is a collection in the Library of Congress, which are where it did most of the work for this, in the Sound Recording uh, Library. There are over 3,400 recordings, and, and that doesn't include the recordings made in the last 20 years. So there are thousands and thousands of people 
of musical groups have recorded it. You know, from African townships and Kenya, tribes women singing it, right through to concert halls of Western Europe. It's it's entered the kind of uh, pantheon, really, of recorded music. Now, uh, not all of it's and uh, very good. I mean, it's very strange. I sat for two weeks listening to hundreds of versions of Amazing Race. Some of them almost drove me crazy. Um, <laughs> some of, but that's just personal taste. You know, I couldn't bear listening to Mantovani, if anyone ever remembers Mantovani. Um, uh, uh, Janis Joplin did one, which is kind of an extraordinary kind of rock version. Um, but the man, the one that I loved it, even uh, above the three that we've mentioned, even above Judy Collins, uh, the Pipers, and uh, Aretha Franklin, even above them all, the one that I love because I think he is one of the great men of the 20th century is Paul Robeson mm-hmm. I mean people certainly in Britain tend to forget him now but uh, it's hard to recall what an extraordinary man he was and that wonderful voice and again his voice African American takes you back to the extraordinary resonance that that him has amongst African Americans mm-hmm. the, the role it plays in African American worship um, but that's my favourite one of the many hundreds that I've listened to in the course of researching for this book. James, one of the uh, lyrical um, elements of the song that I continue to meditate on um, over many, many years of uh, hearing recordings and singing it myself and all of that is that it's a combination of, um, of things. So I understand why people who are inside the church would appreciate the song, right? But it is interesting yeah. and always gives me pause at how people outside the church still resonate with it. Um, and especially yeah. because it's a combination of comfort. Um, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Um, but it's also inc- like a statement of incredible humility and acknowledgement of sin right off the bat. And that doesn't see that seems to be working in opposition to our current culture. So, I mean, how do you see that? Well, I I don't see it in working counter to anything really. I mean, I think it's it, this is a hymn that appeals to an incredible spectrum of humanity, if you will. I mean, it is a hymn for humanity, and uh, you can actually find comfort in it, whatever um, religion and whatever kind of uh, political ethos you, you you are attached to. Um, you, if you, the third verse in particular, you know, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Well, you know, this is, those are the words that are, would tug at the heartstrings of anyone who's mm-hmm. been through dangers, toils, and snares. And I, I think that's why, for instance, I mean, any number of early American folk singers uh, didn't like singing it because it was religious, they thought. Um, uh, they resisted recording it, but they were persuaded to do so because of its humanity, because it was humane. Um, so, you know, both political left and political right can find something in this hymn that appeals to the way they look at the world or they think about their faith. Uh, add that to a haunting tune, and you have a, well, a unique mix that makes it what it is today. Yes. So 250 years, and James, your scholarship, all this uh, research and listening and Mm -hmm. writing, um, uh, what is the answer to the question of why is it so important? I mean, you've thought about this, written about it, talked about it. Um, Do you have the answer? Um, 
if I did, I'd be a very wealthy man. Um, <laughs> it is, it's one of the great imponderables, isn't it? How yes. is it? Let me put it the other way around and put your question the other way around. How do we explain a simple hymn written for a group of simple English worshippers 250 years ago is today beloved by tens of millions of people? Uh, the, the answer to that, well, one of the answers is read the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, There's a cliffhanger. Yeah, absolutely. James, before we leave, I just want to say that I went to a wedding uh, about a month ago. And, uh, you know, the processional as the, you know, bridesmaids are coming down the aisle, sure. just, tradi- you know, traditional processional music. Yeah. But when it came time for the bride and her father to come down the aisle, the music switched and it became Amazing Grace. What? That's unusual. And I yeah. thought, you know what? So it's it is. It, it's And it was beautiful. And it was it was thought provoking and it was contemplative and i think that's the mystery of the song is that it can almost fit any circumstance A funeral or wedding right yes. if 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 the heart and mind is in the right place yes absolutely it is it is that that unique combination of words that have meaning for millions with a haunting tune that actually tugs at your heartstrings and somehow or other the two come together in a way that they very rarely do in any other hymn. James Walvin is professor of history emeritus at the University of York and the new book is called Amazing Grace, A Cultural History of the Beloved Hymn. James, we love the conversation. Thank you so much for your scholarship and your passion. Thank you very much for having me. I had a, a bad case of wanderlust. So I bought myself a Eurail Pass. Oh, I would love to. Flew to London and then took trains all over England, Portugal, and Spain. Um, I was gone for almost five months and just rode trains and rode trains and rode trains. Now, it's an almost impossible thing to do here in the United States. It's not States. the same. It really it isn't. But there is something new that I saw, which if, if you had the time and the money, this would be like a, an incredible ship. Uh, something called Railbookers is offering an 80-day trip, which you visit 13 countries across four continents, an incredibly glamorous way to zigzag your way across the planet. You'll travel on seven of the world's most luxurious trains, enjoying world-class dining and private cabins, also stays in some amazing hotels included along the way. You'll also see 20 UNESCO World Heritage oh, Sites. really? And 20 fabulous cities. How about that? From Paris to Venice, Vancouver, Edinburgh, Delhi, Mumbai, Istanbul, all over the place. Doesn't come cheap. Oh, no. A, uh, the trip 
the beginning of the trip, which does not include hotel stays, car transfer, and a few flights, meals, and tours. Wait, it doesn't include any of those things? Right. Wait, it's a... Okay. It would still cost you $113,000. Wow. But the, the attraction is... If you had that kind of cash, you were self-contained in a rail car with this group of people traveling for the entirety of the 80 days. Wouldn't that be cool? Okay, but what if you were traveling with those people for the duration? Yeah. What if the people were crazy? You can. Now, you can also do whole trip or portions of the trip. Mm. Mm -hmm. My sister just came back from Poland. My sister is a really experienced world traveler. And she was with a group of people in in this kind of tour where she said she loved it. She said, of course, there's always, you know, one one or two wild cards. But she said the majority of the group, they were excellent. People from far-flung places, occupations, uh, incomes, all that. She said everybody got along famously. I love that. Yeah. Okay. I... I'm desperate to go to Poland. Oh, yeah. You know, I have Polish heritage. Mm-hmm. I've never been to Poland. I've never been to Eastern Europe yeah. at all. She loved it. She's been to Poland several times. She said, I'm done. I've seen Pol- I've seen enough of Poland. And, of course, she went to concentration camps in Poland. Sure. Which, of course, she said, I've seen this several times. It will make you cry. It should make us cry. <clears throat> it should. Anyway, 113 grand. <sighs> mm-hmm. That's a lot. That's a ton of For money. 80 days. Mm-hmm. That's a ton. Yeah. I'd, I'd jump at it. If you could, if you would. Spending $100,000 for less than three months? Well, if you had that kind of money, then money wouldn't mean anything to you. Right. So it'd just be like, you know, okay, let's just go. But could you imagine taking off? Oh, my gosh. See the world. I would love to do Me that. Too. All right. So if you were traveling, yes. here's another thing you might want to check out. Um, the World Cheese Awards. What? Yep. What are the I was just reading awards? about this today, and I'm a little I'm a little behind because uh, the World Cheese Awards, the unique cheese only competition, which uh, has been held every year since 1988, took place in Trondheim, Norway, at the end of October hmm. on the 27th. Uh, now, you, I'm bringing this up because you love yourself some cheese. Heck yeah. I mean, you love yourself a little cheese and olives, mm, cheese and fruit thing. Prosciutto. Okay, well, you might be re- you might want to look into this. Yeah. This year saw a record number of cheeses entered, four thousand five hundred and two, from forty three countries. Who ate all those? Well, cheeses? listen, they're judged by an international panel, two hundred sixty four judges from thirty eight nations, that included some of the most knowledgeable cheese professionals. <laughs> As well as food journalists, retail buyers, and experts in other food categories to make sure that cheeses were assessed with what they call rigor Hmm. and roundedness. Uh, The event was held at the Spectrum Indoor Arena. Pardon me, in Trondheim. Um, And uh, it was over two days. The public was also given access to the venue, allowing them to see the judging area and also visit exhibitors. um, To buy your own cheese. To buy your own cheese and to taste your own cheese. Um, But the winner. The winner is a soft blue farmhouse cheese made only two hours from Trondheim, Mm. and it was named World Champion Cheese. Um, It was named after the Trondelag County River Nidelven Blah. Yeah. (laughs) The Blah. (laughs) Uh, It's made by third-generation farmers, husband and wife, Marin and Ole Gongstadt. Mm. There's something about a soft 
blue cheese. I love it. Like we used to have Saga Blue all the time. Mm. It's got a nice bite to it, but it's so creamy and spreadable. Mm, fabulous. I'd love to go to this event. Mm. When it comes to tidying up your home, fitness experts say that there are two distinct ways to sweat more as you sweep. Fitness experts are talking about cleaning your house? Yep. You can add gym-worthy exercises into your cleaning routine or just be more deliberate about the way that you tackle the chores themselves. Uh, There's this article in today's Washington Post. Dustin Morris, who's a professor of health promotion and health behavior at Maryland University. What kind of? If you're using house cleaning as a way to increase movement and physical activity, do 20 to 30 minutes each day. He also advises uh, switching up the task you perform for better muscular balance. Focus on laundry and dusting one day, bathrooms the next, and vacuuming and sweeping up on other days. Ramp to ramp up the calories, burn off your household chores. Here's how you can do it. So then they go into this whole article, which is a little ridiculous, about dusting. Here's what you should do. Um, you can do standing side leg lifts while you're tackling higher up shelves. Uh, in your bathroom, uh, grueling uh, by cleaning the bathtub and the mirror and the toilets. The, all the movements means you're hitting different muscle groups and burning upwards of 200 calories for a small bathroom, maybe 500 calories for a larger bathroom. Your kitchen, you'll be targeting similar muscle groups in the kitchen as you did in the bathroom. I mean, your laundry. If folding clothes is your least favorite chore. Oh, my gosh. I don't mind folding clothes. You don't like folding clothes? I know. I don't mind it at all. Oh, I don't either. Uh, I like it. Makes me feel ordered. Yes. And organized. I like it. And you're done. Yeah, exactly. If folding clothes is your least favorite chore, you're not alone. It's also another opportunity to incorporate a workout. (laughs) When you are folding clothes, for example, you could do push-ups or modified push-ups at an incline against the better a couch. Try adding... Five push-ups between every five pieces of folded clothing. I mean, come on. Okay, you're mopping your floors or you're swifting your floors or whatever. I could see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a good aerobic kind of thing. But, 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 or you're sweeping your floors mm-hmm. with your vacuum cleaner. Right. You can work up a sweat, right? Right. Or you're going up and down the steps. Right. And the repetition of the motions, all that. But, but really, am I really going to be doing leg lifts while I'm working I mean, on most people don't want to clean to begin with, let alone adding exercise on top of it. It's like misery loves company. No, thanks. It would make me feel like I need to separate those two things. How about... Like trying to do them both. At the same time? It just ensures that I'm filled with hatred for both tasks. Right. Yeah, not good. So you now you've been walking with your dog. How do you feel? Uh, I feel good. Okay. But... um. I've realized I need to lift some weights. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to have, you know, um, uh, good muscle mass. Now I think as you get a little older, you lose your muscle mass. Right. And I go, oh, there's, I'm, I'm not as strong as I could or should be. I haven't belonged to a gym in a long time. Well, you can use free weights at home, and then you wouldn't have to pay for a gym. Free weights for your legs? Well, for your hands. For your, what about your legs? Well, you can just do resistance exercises, and you don't have to worry about weights about for your legs. You could do a wall sit. I knew you were going to say that. I don't think I can do a wall sit. Lexi, what do you think about him doing a wall sit? I have that bad ankle. Let's do yeah. a wall sit. No, oh. come on, you guys. Don't. You know. I do a wall. Now, I know you for, do. for listeners who don't know this, I do a wall sit every day. For your thighs. For yes. Your back. 
Yes, and core. Yeah, right. I, I when I started doing it, which was maybe three months, three months ago, ago hmm? I could do fifteen seconds. And now three minutes five seconds. Excellent. Do you notice a difference? To, in yes, your you do. So, t- so today I'm going to three minutes ten. Mm-hmm. I thought about it as I was laying, laying in bed this morning. I Wait. thought, I'm moving to 10. Okay. Three minutes, 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. All right. So all you do, all you do, is you push against the wall, yep. and you, you kind of like scrunch down and do you a have squat. To be, you have to be at the right level. You have to be at a 90-degree at a angle. Feet on the floor, and yep. then down. Like, like you're sitting. Yeah. But there's no chair. It looks easy, but it's not. It looks very easy, which is why I started doing it. And then I thought, why can't I complete 15 seconds? Mm-hmm. Then I thought maybe it's because I'm weak. And now, I do feel stronger. I mean, you have to. Yeah, you just have to keep doing it. All right. Well, believe me, I'm not going to do exercises while I'm dusting. No, there's laundry. no way I'm doing that. Right. How about a Peloton? Do you ever think about getting one? Of those? I have a friend who has one and yeah. swears by it. Really? I mean, she loves that thing really? like it's her I whole. I want somebody yelling at me while I'm on a bike. I mean, right. I would never consider it. Except now that I know her, I think about it. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group.